This is a rhetorical question, so you don't have to raise your hand, but I'd love to ask you to. How many of you are still keeping track in the book, The Story? Oh, good. Some honest... Yeah, now we know who is. They're the ones that raise their hands anyway. We're in chapter 25 of the story. And uh, <clears throat> excuse me for using a current phrase, but it's really about Jesus' coming out party. And boy, does he come out. And in this, my title of the message is simply, Who do you say Jesus is? This was the most important question. We all know Peter. And Peter was always putting his foot in his mouth. But boy, this is one of those times when he nails it. Who do you say they am? The most important question Peter was ever asked, and it's the most important question you will ever have to answer. Who do you say Jesus is? Because of who you say he is will ultimately determine your eternal destiny whether you believe it or not. It will. I want to start by reading a quote from C.S. Lewis in his book Mere Christianity and it's a quote that many of you I'm sure have heard before. But just listen to this. C.S. Lewis writes, I am trying to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, I love that line, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him the Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he didn't intend to. Boy, C.S. Lewis said that well, didn't he? People come up with all these things because it's pretty hard if they're open to anything historical, any evidence, it's pretty hard to deny that there was a man named Jesus that lived on this earth. And they will call him all these different things. Can you imagine a person who claimed to be God, was supposedly born of a virgin, said that I'm the only way, the real true God, the Father, I'm the only way, and you not believing that and then calling him a good teacher. He's a liar or a lunatic or something, but he wouldn't be a good teacher. The people in Jesus' time, when he was actually walking the earth, in those years of his ministry, We're always having mixed ideas, confusion, and different thoughts about who this man was. And as you read chapter 25 in the story, which comes from parts of the three Gospels primarily and then jumps into John a lot, when you read this, you'll read phrases like this. And I'm just going to share some of the phrases with you. And listen to their comments as they're trying to figure out, who is this guy? Among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said, he's a good man. Others replied, no, he's a deceiver. He deceives the people. 
Some people were saying, how did this guy get so much learning? And he's never been to school. He's never been trained. Isn't this the man that they're trying to kill? Well, he's speaking publicly and they're not arresting him. Maybe he is. Have they decided he is the Messiah? When the Messiah comes, will he do more amazing things than this man is doing? Some of the people said, man, this man surely is a prophet. Others said, nah, he's the Messiah. And still others asked, how can anybody from Galilee possibly be the Messiah? Their views were divided. They didn't know. And up to what we're reading in chapter 25 of the story, often we would see Jesus doing something amazing, a miracle, and then he'd tell the recipient of that miracle, keep it secret. Don't tell anybody. And we see a lot of his teaching was in parables. And then he even tells us why he's doing that. So not everybody will understand. So up to a certain point in his ministry, I kind of get it that the people were confused. As I said, if you could imagine living in that day, or if the Messiah hadn't come yet, living in the current time, and all of a sudden some guy shows up making the claims Jesus made, we'd probably be confused too. We might deny a lot of what he did. We may try to somehow explain the miracles away. Like we never do that today, right? So I can understand some of their confusion. One time the leaders even said, are you greater than our father Abraham? He died and so did the prophets. So who in the world do you think you are? As I said, Jesus had been telling people to keep it secret. But that time is about to end in the chapter 25 of the story. Jesus begins to spell it out really clearly. And he starts saying things like this. He says, Whoever believes in me, rivers of living water will flow from within him. He says, I am the light of the world. You know, and we hear those phrases, and, and with our, our Western way of thinking and what we understand, we, we, we've heard them so often that we kind of come, okay, that's nice, we get it, we heard the stories. But to a Jew that was hearing this, and especially at the time Jesus made these statements, you know, he proclaimed this in Jerusalem during the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. And what that was was this, they would build little tabernacles, little booths, we might call them forts, or glorified tents, and they would do this to remember that time when Jesus delivered them from Egypt, and they lived in the wilderness all those 40 years. And they would build this, but there were certain things that happened during this feast. And some of these things that Jesus was saying right now would have resonated in the Jewish mind, especially during the Feast of Booths. For example, when he says, I am the light of the world. A major part of their ceremony, and some people say, historians say, that these candelabras were like 75 feet high. And they were huge candelabras. They would be at the the temple, and during the Feast of Tabernacles, they would light, they would take gallons of oil and light these candles, these fires, on these humongous tabernacles to show the light representative of the glory of God, that that Shekinah glory that was in the temple during their days and wandering. And here's Jesus saying, I'm the light. Not that light you're lighting in the temple. 
they'd have got it right now even though we kind of don't. Oh, and then he said, I am the living water. He who drinks of my water will never ever thirst anymore. Out of their bellies will flow rivers of living water. These things he's speaking even of the Holy Spirit. When he started speaking about water, the most beautiful, the most wonderful, the most joyous event of the Feast of Tabernacles was when the priest would go with two big golden cups. And he would go with one of them containing wine and they would go to the pool of Siloam. And they would fill that other cup with water. And then there would be this parade with musicians and singing of the hymns and of the psalms marching through the city. This joyous event, the water. The water that gives life. And they would go back to the temple and they would put this on the altar and mix this water and the wine. They would have known instantly when Jesus, who happened to walk in and say this at the temple, right during the time on the Feast of Booths when the priest would be doing this, and he declares, I'm the living water. He had come out of the closet. He was making clear to the Jewish mind and the Jewish culture, even in the words he was speaking, of who he was. He went on and said things like, if you don't believe in me, then you don't believe in the Father. If you believe in me, you believe in the Father. If you say you haven't seen me, you say you haven't seen the Father. These would have been about as in-your-face teachings as you could come up with. We, we sometimes think of Jesus as this kind, sweet, gentle guy who would never say any controversial things. Well, he was love, but he was in their face with these truths. He was making sure there's no excuses. No excuses. He said, didn't I tell you if you believe you will see the glory of God? Anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a child will never ever enter into it. Those who believe in me do not believe in, those who believe in me do not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. No one who believes in me should stay in darkness. And we could go on and on and on with his statements that he was making about who he was. And yet, even in spite of all this directness of Jesus, people were still confused. People were still resistant to the truth. The opinions, the, the messages the people were receiving, they were all over the place. And here we are, over 2,000 years later, 2,000 years of history, the Holy Spirit living and dwelling in God's people, the Word of God everywhere, and we're still confused. So much of the world is still coming up with crazy ways of denying who Jesus was, recasting who he was, redefining who he was, coming up with half-truths and mixtures. And sometimes we think, God, this is new or this is different. Sometimes some of the things are trying to get as close to the truth as they can, but it's a different Jesus. And in our culture, it's almost becoming uh, taboo to point out that they're worshiping a different Jesus. Or to say that this religion or that religion is a lie. That certain things are cults. We come up with this lie that there's many paths to God. Baloney. Jesus is or He isn't. And He said, no one comes to the Father but through Me. Muhammad, Buddha, it doesn't matter. You won't get there. We're still confused. You know, we have still got atheists. You know, I can at least respect an atheist. They're lost, but they're honest. An atheist doesn't believe 
there's a God. The agnostics are out there. What is an agnostic? That gets a little confusing. They don't believe there is a God, but they don't believe that there isn't one either. They just believe that it's too deep. We couldn't understand one way or the other, so we can't explain those things. A little confusion there. The agnostics. And then we have all of these different Christian cults that have a different Jesus. And I'm just going to mention two or three of the more common ones. Christian science is out there getting all this publicity, getting big stars involved with this religion. And they're saying it's Christian, as in Christian science. They do not, they do not believe that Jesus was God in the flesh. They don't believe that He was flesh. They believe that He was spirit. You know what this is? This is Gnosticism from 2,000, 3,000 years ago, just recycled one more time. Paul dealt with the Gnostics at the very beginning. The people who believed he was just spirit. He just looked like flesh. He couldn't be flesh because material things were evil. Spirit things are good. If Jesus is good, can't be. Gnosticism. Still here, only we redefined it as Christian science. Then, some of them that we're more familiar with in our own local areas. There's the Jehovah Witnesses. Jehovah Witnesses is really nothing more than Arianism. The Jehovah Witnesses, they deny the full deity of Jesus. They deny the Trinity. They deny that He was God in the flesh. They look at Him and say that He was the first and direct creation of Jehovah God. That He was not God. They package it. They write it up and they put nice multicolored brochures and books together. They do a much better job of evangelizing than the true Christians do, but it's a different Jesus. It's not Jesus of the Bible. Then there's the Mormons. The Mormon church. This one gets really weird if you really study it. It's just really weird. First of all, God, Father God, came from a planet out there called Kolob. And He was born of a male and a female divinity. And then Father God had sexual union with Mary and Jesus was born. And it just goes downhill from there. It's polytheism. There's many gods. Jesus and the devil are brothers and we are too. And we all can become gods. And yet they package it so well. And we're so afraid to stand up and say, that's a different Jesus. And you buy into those lies. These people, they're not bad people. They're deceived. They need to know the truth. Gal, some of the, the most moral people I know are involved in some of these deceptive religions. We need to hate their theology and love them and share the truth with them. We're as confused now as they were 2,000 and some years ago about who the real Jesus is. They weren't sure. But Jesus in chapter 25 of the story was making it clear. He was coming out. It is crunch time. No more wishy-washy answers. He came to this place where they were faced with only two options, and it's the same two options that we have today. Believe it or not. Is he or isn't he? Don't redefine it. Don't reshape it. So many people back then and even yet today, we want to redefine Jesus is so I stay in my comfort zone. Boy, he required a lot to be a follower and disciple of Jesus. You know, some of our teams are going to come back from Rwanda 
and Bangkok. And they're going to be able to tell us what it takes in countries like that to follow Jesus. There's nothing else in some situations, but Jesus is enough. They have a joy and a peace in their heart. Part of the problem with our Western Christianity is we've tried to turn it into something that's so comfortable. You know, I like cushioned chairs, and I like a nice building. I like all that stuff. But it has nothing to do with who Jesus really is. And it has nothing to do with the commission that we have to go and make disciples of all peoples. They were faced with that question with only two options. And if the things Jesus had been saying up to this point that I've shared with you weren't enough, now he really gets in their face. This really brings his coming out party to a conclusion that the religious people didn't like. There's a number of I am statements in the Bible. I'm just going to mention a couple. Jesus said in John 6:48, I am the bread of life. He said in John 8:12, I am the light of the world. He said in John 11:25, I am the resurrection and the life. In John 8:58, he said before Abraham was, I am. Now we read that again with our western way of thinking. And we miss if we don't have a little understanding of the Jewish mindset and the Jewish culture. When Jesus would have been saying these things, I am, they were hearing what was said back in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, when Moses encountered God and says, Who should I tell them is sending me? And it says, God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you would say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Put up that next slide, would you please? In the Hebrew, the letters across the top. We make them in the English letters we're familiar with, Y-H-W-H. We hear the word, are familiar with the word Yahweh. When God said, I am, he was giving this name that we call Yahweh, or even Jehovah. And what he was saying is, I am the eternal one, the preexistent one, the omnipotent, omnipresent one. I am. So when Jesus is standing before the Jewish people, the Jewish leaders, the religious people, and he is saying, I am, they were cringing in anger, hatred, this was the final straw. From here on out, we've got to figure out how to kill this guy. He is claiming, I am. He is God. That's who he claimed to be. Who do you say that Jesus is? I'm going to read a scripture in Mark chapter 8. If you want to turn there, or it will be on the screen if it's big enough for you to read. Starting in verse 27. Notice in the first verse, it says, Jesus and his disciples went on, the, went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. Now, Caesarea Philippi was kind of in the northern part of what we would think of as Israel, up north of the Sea of Galilee. And it was a region and there was a city. And they called it Caesarea Philippi. This guy named Philip planted this city. And it was a mixture of cultures. 
Greek gods, idols, idol worship, all kinds of gods, all kinds of theologies, if you would, those words. And this is the area, this is the culture they're near. And I, I point that out so that we understand, it gives to me more significance to the questions Jesus is saying and asking to Peter and his disciples. So he says, they're around the villages around Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked them, who do the people say that I am? And they replied, some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah. Still others say you're one of the prophets. And other scripture will say Jeremiah. It's basically, they got a little bit right. All those guys had died, and I guess they were resurrected or something. They were believing something. But he was none of those things. And Jesus says, but what about you? And that's the question that's really relevant. What about you? What about me? Who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. And when this event actually took place, Jesus had not came out publicly yet. And notice the next verse. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about this. Peter had nailed it. He had gotten it right. But it wasn't time for it to be made public. And then Jesus goes on in verse 31. It says, They began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. He is still working with His disciples trying to get them to truly grasp and understand the Messiah as He truly is. Not of their preconception that we talked about last week. The Messiah isn't coming in as a mighty warrior on a great big white horse wielding a sword leading a mighty army. He starts to teach them. What does He teach them? That the Son of Man must suffer many things. That He will be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law. And that He must be killed. And after three days, He'll rise again. Verse 32 says, He spoke plainly about this. That word plainly really means clearly. No more parables. Now with these guys. Now with the disciples. He says, I'm speaking clearly. I'm speaking plainly. This is who I am. And this is what I'm called to do. This is part of God's upper plan. Upper story. His heavenly story. And he says, Peter, 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 Peter comes on. He hits it so right on the nose when he says, you are the Messiah. And within seconds, he blows it. Don't you love Peter? Should be all of our middle names. Michael, Peter, John, Peter, Luann, Peter, you women too. All of us. Man, one minute we are right there and the next minute we're somewhere back there or someplace messing up. What does Peter do? I notice in this particular script, gospel, he says Peter kind of took him aside. I mean, the words mean he reached out and he put his hand like, like you sometimes want to grab somebody by the shoulder and say, shut up. That's what he did. He reaches out and he takes hold of Jesus. And he begins to rebuke him. Think about this for a second. You are the Messiah. Let me rebuke you. We do the same thing when we try and straighten out God. When we want Him to do it our way because He got it wrong. In our time when He's not quick enough. We do the same thing as Peter. It makes me so upset with myself. But we do it. 
Jesus turns and he looks at his disciples and he rebuked Peter and he says, Get behind me, Satan. He said, you, not have in, you do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. For those of you that have been in, in part of this series, we've been talking about the upper story and the lower story. God's upper plan of redemption, of restoring and reconciling unity, intimacy with his church. And then lower story of man, what's taking place down here. And so many times in this process, we see the upper story and the lower story in conflict. And this is one of those times. God is saying, you've got your mind all messed up. You're not thinking on my upper story. You're trying to live in your lower story, and you're wrong. In God's upper story, the plan of redemption is beginning to unfold for the final act. And Satan, get behind these Satan. I don't believe he was calling Peter Satan, not for a second. He was speaking to those words that were coming out of Peter's mouth and saying, Satan, that is a lie. Get behind me. You don't have a clue. You're wrong. You're not going to stop me from fulfilling the destiny that the Father has for me. Clear instructions follow and what it takes to be a true disciple of Christ. They were clear as crystal for the disciples. And they're totally applicable for us today. Starting in verse 34. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, and listen to this verse. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Again, to a first century Jew, this would have a meaning that they couldn't miss that we might miss. To a first century Jew, remember, their religion, their rules, their requirements, everything was so established, so traditional. And Jesus would often, often use the law, the Mosaic law, use parts of the law, use the feasts like he did the Feast of Booths or Feast of Tabernacles. He would use Passover. He would use all of these things to like drive home his message. And that's what he did right here in those verses I just read from 34 to 38. Do you know what a proselyte is? A proselyte. A proselyte Jew would mean, proselytize means we're going to try to bring them from wherever they're at to our religion. And they had a, they had a pattern set up for the people because there were Greeks and there were other foreigners who wanted to become Jews, who wanted to embrace Judaism. And they had a system in place. Here's how you do it. One, two, three, four. Here's how you do it. These are the conditions that must be met for you to become a proselyte Jew. And Jesus is nailing his teaching for all of us in the minds of the Jew right now with what he just said. So I'm going to look at those four conditions that, it was, that were required for a non-Jew to become a Jew. First one, and I'm going to use it based on Scripture, 
um, of verse 34 that I read, especially this part of the verse. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. The four conditions are right in that verse. And the first condition was this, based on if anyone would come after me, a proselyte would come, had to come, to meet the requirements of the Jewish religion voluntarily. Nobody forcing him, nobody deceiving him, nobody tricking him into becoming a Jew. Voluntary. Jesus starts in that verse 34 and says, if anyone would, voluntary. If anyone wants to, here's what it's going to take. Voluntary. You ever wanted to make somebody become a Christian so bad you just about hit them over the head with the Bible, tied them up and drug them to church? How did it work for you? It doesn't work very well for me. It's voluntary. The Holy Spirit has got to soften and open their heart. And then the Lord will allow us to be the ones who can share the good news of the gospel. And we might even be the ones that he allows to lead them into a relationship with Christ. But really, it doesn't have much to do with you or me. It has to do with what God is doing and them voluntarily receiving the gift of salvation. So when Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, the Jew's mind, first step of becoming a proselyte Jew. First step, voluntary and then in that verse it says he must deny himself. The second condition of a proselyte Jew was that they would renounce, renounce, repent of, if you like that word better, all of their previous prejudices, all of the errors in their thinking, all of their idolatry, and everything else that concerned whatever false religion they might have been a part of, they would have to renounce all of that. And to take it even further, then they would have to separate themselves from those friends and people most intimate to them that might draw them back away. Voluntary. On these grounds, this is how the Jews justified what they called them. And if you haven't heard this before, this ought to ring a bell for each one of us. Jews called the proselytism, a new birth. They would call that proselyte newborn. They would call him a new man. Boy, Jesus is just hitting these people right where they are, they're at. John 3, 3, you must be born again. Unless a man is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. The born again phrase even though Nicodemus says, well, huh? For us, the Jew would have understood. Jesus requires men to be born again. Not only of water, but of the Holy Spirit. Acknowledge and renounce sin and turn to Jesus. Those who would voluntarily follow me must first deny themselves, forsake all that other stuff, and follow me. And then it goes on in verse 34 and says, take up his cross. The Jewish proselyte had to submit to the yoke of the law, the Mosaic law. This was part of the conditions. And if you're familiar with the Mosaic law, I mean, I, I can't hardly imagine having not been Jewish living however I was living, 
and then deciding I want to join this Judaism and become Jewish. And all of a sudden, there's this humongous law with all its rules, all its regulations, all its requirements, all its sacrificial ceremonies, and on and on and on it goes. The proselyte had to submit to that yoke and not only submit to the yoke, they had to willingly bear with all the consequences, all the inconveniences, all the sufferings that they would face because of their choice. Jesus requires the same conditions for us. If you would, anyone would, come after me, take up this cross. In Matthew eleven twenty eight, it says this, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Man, when he's saying that, the Jews had to be going crazy. No wonder the religious leaders wanted to kill him. He's saying there's this new yoke, the yoke of Jesus Christ. They have the Mosaic yoke. It is a burden. It is something no human being other than Jesus could have ever fulfilled. It was to show that they couldn't, prove that they couldn't. It was like a burden, a weight, a yoke that they wore as an oxen. And Jesus is coming along and said, oh, there's still a yoke, but don't worry about my yoke. It's my yoke. It's, it's a light yoke. It's an easy yoke. In comparison to the Mosaic yoke. But there is still a yoke. That's what we need to understand. Jesus still has expectations. Jesus still has things that he requires, but it's all out of a love relationship. That's what makes his yoke easy. That's what make his burden, makes his burden light. You know, some of you could ask me to do something, and I might look at the task that you asked me to do, and I'd hate it, and I'm going to say no. And if I do do it because I'm feeling guilty because I got that stupid pastor label, I'd do it and be miserable. But if my wife asked me to do it, well, this is going to break down, isn't it? <laughs> if my wife asked me to do it, I love her. I'll do that for her. And it won't bother me. It's not a burden. It's a joy because it blesses her. So this is where it breaks down. I don't always do it this well. But you understand the theory. Because I love her, because of relationship, what, what's required is not a burden, it's a joy. And it's such a joy that it blesses me, even as it would be blessing her. Jesus is saying, my burden, my yoke is like that. It's light, it's easy. It's because of love. It's out of, by grace, through faith in Jesus, this intimacy that we have with Him. Get rid of that mosaic yoke, who's a burden, and put on my yoke. Relationship with Jesus. But it is still... An obedience. It is still lining up with Jesus and His Word. It's not a get-out-of-jail-free card like we might want to make it to be sometimes. His cross. When it says, take up your cross, it means at least two things. One, we need to boldly profess that Jesus Christ was crucified for our sins. 
he made a point at least three times in the Gospels of explaining very clearly that the Messiah will come, he will be rejected, he will suffer, he will die on that cross, but he will be raised from the dead. And then for us, he said, oh, by the way, when I leave, I'm coming back. But we need to profess the cross, embrace the cross, but we also need to remember that Jesus said, why are you surprised if you suffer? Why are you surprised if you get persecuted? They persecuted me. They nailed me to a tree. When it talks about picking up our cross daily, we need to acknowledge it willingly and even cheerfully, gladly. Say, yes, I will suffer for Jesus Christ. The problem is most of the time we suffer for all the wrong reasons. It's not for Jesus, not for truth. But as a Christian, Jesus was showing those people, this is what it takes to be my disciple. And the fourth condition, the last condition, he simply says, follow me. The proselyte Jew will continue in that Jewish religion, faithful even to the point of death. So when you look at what the proselyte Jew, that non-Jew, had to go through to become Jewish, you can begin to understand how hard it would have been for the Jewish people to change to change what they believed. When Jesus showed up as the Messiah, it would have just rattled their entire paradigm, their entire world, all of a sudden was going to look different. If they decided to believe in Jesus. You know, I asked a person once in a conversation at their home. And it was in, happened to be in regard to healing, as healing for today. And it was right after, it's years ago, right after I had preached a sermon in our old building about healing. And I went to this person and I said, what did you think of the message Sunday? And they said, well, you made a pretty convincing argument. And I said, what would it do to you if you believed what I just said the word says? And he said, Mike, it would change my whole theology. That's what the Jews had to do. Everything had to change. So, you know, I can be hard on the Jews sometimes, like, how come you guys couldn't get this? But at the same time, I can understand. It would have changed their theology completely. And we get a picture of that, even as Jesus is teaching these people, that Jewish proselyte, he's connecting them to that picture, to that thought. We can see how difficult it would be. And then he says, follow me, which meant all the way unto death, you will remain Jewish and you will follow the Jewish traditions and laws. And Jesus is saying the same thing to us. It's included in that word, follow. And verses 35, 6, 7, and 8 pretty well summarize what that means. If you want to save your life, you've got to lose it. If you lose your life for Him and for the gospel, you will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the world and forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me in this adulterous and sinful generation, and if that's not our generation, I don't know what it is. Anybody who's ashamed of me and my words, how often are we afraid to speak the Word of God in our culture when the culture is directly contradicting the Word of God? We're losing our culture because we're afraid. We're ashamed of the Word of God. The marriage issue should have never even been an issue in a nation that says it's Christian. The Bible clearly says marriage is one man, one woman for life. 
Voices are silent. All life is a gift of God. Abortion is rampant. And you could go on and on and on. We need to walk in love. Don't ever forget that. But we need to speak the truth in love. If the church becomes silent, the culture will be lost. That's all there is to it. I may have shared this, and it's kind of a rabbit trail, but a real quick one. At a seminar I was at a few weeks ago, they talked about the millennials. Basically, they just define it this way. Anybody under 40? All of you over 40, you're like me, you're part of the baby boomers. Our time has come and gone. There's 85 to 88 million baby or millennials in America. Defining Christianity this way, or going to church, regular church attendance this way, they defined it themselves. They said regular church attendance is when you go six or seven times a year. You're all regular church attendees. Hallelujah. They said, how many of you are regular church attendees by your own definition? Out of 88 million, seven and one half percent said they were regular church attendees. When the polling people defined regular church attendance as attempting to go once a week, out of 88 million millennials, less than 1% said they are regular church attendees. What does that look like? It looks like Europe. That's where we're headed if we don't reach out to the millennials. Sometimes people my age might wonder, why are we doing some of the things we do in this church? Because it's not the way we used to do it. Because we want to reach the millennials. The message will never change, but the method has to change. We need to be willing to follow Jesus. We need to lay down some of our sacred cows. Some of our things that don't matter one bit when it comes to salvation and the essential doctrines of Christ. That part of us has to die so that others can live. And Jesus, when he was explaining this, he says, follow me. Which brings us back to the title of my message. Who do you say Jesus is? This is the question every single one of us has to answer. Who do you say Jesus is? If somebody came up to you and said, who do you say Jesus is? Are you ready for an answer? Are you ready with an answer? I want to encourage you, first of all, how do you answer that? And secondly, be prepared for when someone else does ask you. Who is this Jesus? And they may not phrase it exactly that way, but you'll get the drift. They might say, why do you believe in Jesus? Let me tell you who he is. We need to be ready, but first we need to know for ourselves who he really is. You know, I thought it was interesting in this section of Scripture where it said they were in that area around Caesarea Philippi, this culture of compromise, culture of many gods, false gods, false religions. I thought, yeah, that's us. That's America. We live in a culture of atheists, agnostics, cults, false religion, redefined Jesus. Who do you say that he is? Who is he? Jesus' claims are non-negotiable. Anybody here ever been accused of being an intolerant? Well, if you haven't, I'm a little concerned. We want to love people, but Christianity is very intolerant in terms of truth and who Jesus is. I'll compromise on lots of things. The volume on the music, for example. 
I don't like it, but I'll compromise. But there are certain truths we cannot compromise on. And we will be intolerant. And we are going to be called all those things and more. We're going to be called homophobes. We're going to be called bigots. We're going to be intolerant. You know, right now it's just a little uncomfortable in certain places to be a Christian and publicly declare that. It's going to get worse unless the culture changes. And the Holy Spirit and God's church are the only thing that's going to change it. We need to know who Jesus is. And we need to know that he is, it's not open for negotiations. We, the choice is still simple. It's the same one. Either believe it or don't believe it. Jesus is the only source of eternal life then, just like now. God's upper story plan of redemption. We've been spending all these weeks working towards this. This is it. Jesus. His upper story plan of redemption and reconciliation, of drawing the world back to himself in Jesus Christ. And we're the carriers of that message. I hope none of us are considered wishy-washy when it comes to our answer who Jesus is. I hope that none of us are half-hearted in sharing who Jesus is. And I hope you're not redefining who he is to keep you comfortable. Because what that usually means is there's certain issues in my life that the Holy Spirit's putting his finger on and it's being identified as sin or compromise or wrong priorities. So I just redefine things a little bit so I'm okay. I probably am the only one in this room that does that, but I need to quit. And if you're like me, so do you. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow him. It's a voluntary commitment. It'll cost you everything. And in return, you gain everything. Scripture I'm not going to go to, but we all know in Revelation, there's this amazing thing when Jesus returns and the new Jerusalem this place for his people. It'll make anything we experience on this earth seem so insignificant. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for your love, mercy, and compassion for your people. God, that you revealed how you feel about us when you went to that cross. God, I pray by your Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit, we will be able to reveal to you the depth of our love and the way that we walk out this life as a Christian, a follower of Jesus. Lord, I pray that if there's anybody here, even this morning, that has never made that commitment, never received the gift of salvation, never acknowledged their sins or need for a Savior, I pray the day would be the day that your Holy Spirit opens their heart and that they would voluntarily receive the gift of salvation through Christ. And for all of us, Lord, I pray that we would give freedom to your Holy Spirit to really mess with us. Arrange our life. Show us those areas of our lives that are just not right with you. And grant us the grace to confess those things and get back on track with you. Help us to be ready in season and out 
at all times to tell people who Jesus is and to be able to defend that position. Lord, I pray now that as we go our separate ways, first, Lord, I pray you would bless the food that we're about to eat, bless those who have prepared it, are going to serve it. And Lord, I pray you would go before each of us this week, that we would walk truly as your ambassadors, and that we'd be aware and we'd be alert to all those divine moments that you give us to share Jesus with the world around us. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.